Welcome to ContenderCast, a leadership conversation centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. It's the ContenderCast with Justin Hahnemann. We're shining a light on bright ideas. And today we are talking spices and we're talking about an amazing new company called Burlap and Barrel. And my guest is Ori Zohar. Ori, it is awesome having you on the podcast. So glad to be here. Yeah, dude, I'm excited. Um, I love the space and I, I'm re- really excited about your new company and what you're doing. And we're going to get there in just a minute. But share with our audience a little bit of your background and how you got into the entrepreneurial space. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, my story is a funny story, a kind of <laughs> zigzag line in between many different points of getting into the entrepreneurial space. Uh, out of college, I studied marketing and I did a fair amount of like small and little entrepreneurial projects. I had a little cap and gown business as an undergrad where I would buy people's cap and gowns for 20 bucks, dry clean them, sell them back to them for $50 for the next graduation. <laughs> wow. I had no idea what I was doing. I cap and gown business. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. But but from there, I kind of said, okay, I want to get some subject matter expertise before <laughs> I jump back in as an entrepreneur. And so I studied marketing. I jumped into the advertising world. I wanted to see how marketers were doing it when they had all the resources in the world to do it. What sure. did best practices look like? And I spent about six years in the advertising world doing what I like to think of as the up and over. Oh, so I did two years in account management on the Intel account. And then I said, okay, I generally understand account management. Where do I jump next? And so I jumped into business development and I did two years of business development and I leveraged my account management skills in to be a better business development person. Um, and then after two years, I was totally burnt out. I did a year and a half doing communication strategy. Huh. And I leveraged my business development account management skills to do that. And then eventually <laughs> I went into doing a digital strategy and they asked me, what do you know about digital media planning? And I said, I, I don't know anything, but I know about all these other things. And I think that that would be valuable here. And for whatever reason, they were sold on that. And so I kind of jumped around and built a little bit of a generalist kind of skill set around advertising, marketing, and communications before jumping back into the entrepreneurial world. Wow. Yeah, I see you were at Mechanic McCann Erickson, obviously one of the big firms out there in the, the media space. And then you decide... You know what? I'm going to go start an ice cream company, Gorilla Ice Cream. So, so talk about that. Yeah. So Gorilla Ice Cream. Um, I had a very good friend, Ethan Frisch, um, that I worked with. Um, I mean, initially, we just became friends. He was always cooking and I was always eating. We, had a kind of, we were on different <laughs> sides of the table. Got and it. over time, he had, he had worked at a few impressive restaurants around New York City. And he, he was part of his role as pastry chef. And so he came in there. He was making ice cream. And at some point... And during one of the dinners, he reached out to all of our friends and said, I really want to do something around ice cream. Maybe we start some kind of ice cream card with flavors inspired political movements. And let's get out <laughs> into the streets of New York wow. City and just start handing out ice cream. Because he'd come from the nonprofit world before that. Got and it. everyone said, well, Ori's our business friend. <laughs> and so no talk to him. And so we came up with this idea where we rented a small commercial kitchen in Chinatown in New York. Sure. We started making our own ice cream. Ethan did it full time. I did it part time, moonlighting and nights and weekends while still holding down work in advertising. And our whole idea was saying ice cream is something that's so like familiar and so available, especially on the streets of New York City. What's our unique take on it? How do we tell a story around it? And so aside from the flavors being inspired by these different countries and political movements, all the all the flavors that came together were, were had amazing toppings. We had a chocolate port wine ice cream topped with cashews and brulee frozen bananas. We tried to like make a fun performance <laughs> wow. out of it. Dude, and, and sounds people amazing. Kind of took to it. Yeah, it, it was delicious. I got three cavities when I got did my teeth cleaning <laughs> after six months. Um, 
But it was a really fun exercise, and the business was not profitable. We donated all of our profits to a street vendor advocacy group. Oh, but for us, it was wow. more of like, you know, if you go to the gym, we were doing a rep. Like, we were just practicing, right? taking something from idea to a business that people get excited about, that, chart, that we can charge money for, that we can get press about, that we can kind of tell a story about. And that was a really, really amazing exercise in that. And so we ran for four months. And at the end of those four months, Ethan moved to get his master's degree in international development. And from there, he moved to nonprofit work in Afghanistan and in wow. Jordan Wow! and kind of went into that side of the world while I was left saying, oh, my God, that was such an intense and amazing right. and crazy startup experience. Right. Where do I get my next fix? Right. Because you were still in the media world in your day job. And this was your side hustle. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Barely sleeping. I can't but it was, it was so exhilarating. And, you know, we were getting a good response. And that feels so good to introduce something into the world and have people say, oh, my God, that's delicious. Or, oh, my God, no that's question. amazing. And I, and I wanted more of that. I felt like that was my proving ground to show that I was ready to jump in and do another proper startup. Oh, that is like entrepreneurship 101. The people that I talk to that, you know, have that same experience are the ones that, you know, are really. It just fuels them, right? And so I could see that. So then you you decide down the road you're going to jump into the mortgage industry from a startup perspective. So how did that happen? That was an ice cream. Yeah. So I think that I learned through through the ice cream business that there are kind of two types of entrepreneurs. There's the subject matter expert that comes in, and this is what they do. They bring the expertise. They build it. It's it's really around their unique view. Maybe they're a doctor. Maybe they're a lawyer. Maybe they're a chef. Maybe they're an engineer. But, but there's somebody that's a subject matter expert that really brings the heart and soul to it. And, and that I was always looking for that. I was always looking for the partner that would bring it. And I found myself a more of the kind of like general operations guy, the kind of get shit done guy, if I'm allowed to curse and apologize. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but um, I was more of the generalist that came in and found this person who was exceptionally skilled at what they do. Got it. And then helped to build a business around them and helped to think about scaling and helped to think about margins and accounting and finance and all those other things that sure. are absolutely critical in terms of getting a business off the ground. And with Ethan, I found an exceptionally talented chef that was capable of making amazing ice cream. And that was our partnership. So after that business, I set out on that process again. And through friends of friends, I met these two entrepreneurs in Switzerland that had started a mortgage business. And they were trying to create a brand new mortgage brokerage in a country where there were no intermediaries for mortgages. People just work directly with their banks. They said, listen, come to us. We'll shop for you across everyone and get you the best deal possible. And after talking wow. to them for a little over a year, they said, listen, we have a new plan. We raised enough money. We now want to finance some independent entrepreneurs to build a similar business in the US. And they introduced me to another guy that was also in a similar boat where he'd come out of a startup, was looking for the next big thing. Him and I got together, put together a business plan, said, hey guys, what do you think if we do this in the US? They said, sounds great. And they gave us our first round of seed financing before we even got anything off the ground, just, just from an idea. And so with that, I moved to San Francisco and we started a mortgage brokerage that was kind of like a super broker. It was called Sindio. And the idea was that shopping for a mortgage is really convoluted, has a lot of jargon. Everyone is kind of compensated to do things that are in their best interest, not in the buyer's best interest. And so we said, let's cut through all of that. We'll become the marketplace. We'll shop for you and find you the best deal. And we'll have a really transparent and fast kind of like tech enabled process to get you across the finish line in record speed. And while, while getting you the best deal. Wow. And you grew to over 100 employees. I mean, wow. 12, 12 states. I mean, pretty pretty sizable business over the four years. Yeah, we spent, 
Yeah, that's right. We spent four years. We did that like like venture capital finance, grow as quickly as possible, burn as much cash as, as you need. Like it's the idea of like load the plane with people and then figure <laughs> out if the engine is attached to it later like <laughs> while you're taxing down the runway. I don't think I've heard that analogy before. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's 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 the business that we were building and and it was amazing. We did we we helped a lot of people guide them through that process, but all the time kind of that that path to profitability was just around the corner. And in the meantime, we had a big tech team. And in the meantime, we had a big marketing team. And so we were growing, we were doing a lot and as we came to raise our Series C, which is going to be our next major round, we had a hiccup with one of our investors that gave us an offer and then pulled it back in the last minute and tried to buy us out of bankruptcy. And then we ended up finding uh, two two folks that wanted to acquire the company and we ended up taking the better offer. And with that, the kind of company was was on its way. And after a short transition, I found myself, A, taking some time to kind of screw my head back on <laughs> and B, starting to think about what the next thing is to do. And so I started kind of reaching back out to my friends yeah. and and back to Ethan, who yeah. I had done the ice cream business with. Right. He was back from Afghanistan and from Jordan. He had brought back these amazing spices, checked in his bags under the plane, and he had shared it with his chef friends, and his chef friends were going crazy for it. So he said, listen, wow. there, there's something here with these spices. I don't know what it is yet. Let's talk about how do we make a business out of this. Wow. Well, so Burlap and Barrel, that's your, your current business. And, um, and I was checking out some of the flavors. Pretty awesome. Cured sumac, wild mountain cumin. I mean, black yeah. urfa chili. Some okay. So, how did you? What what made you say? You know what? We're going to take these spices and start a company around this. Like, wh- why was the idea that good? So, at the beginning, Ethan was it was Ethan's role to kind of figure out the foundation, kind of take it from zero to one. Who are the farmers? How do we import? Where do we bring it into the U.S.? How do we get into jars? How do we get into consumers? His job in the first year that he did himself while I was still wrapping up the last company and still figuring out what was going on next was to figure was to figure that out. And what what we kind of stumbled across in that process was that most spices come through this like massive commodity market. They get mixed and mixed and mixed. They change hands 15 to 20 times. By the time they get to the supermarket, they're about three years old. Wow. And so, three years old. Yeah, yeah, wow. it's, just, it's it's this really old school supply chain where the farmer sells to somebody with a pickup truck, who sells to somebody with a drying facility, who sells to somebody with a warehouse. <laughs> and every stage, they sit in the corner of a warehouse for three months. They get mixed with ten different lots, and like, and spices are plants and seeds and fruits and nuts. And so, how they're treated and where they come from matters. And people sure. figure that out with coffee and with tea and with chocolate. People know where their produce comes from. People know where That's their right. where their seafood comes from. That's right. But spices are still these like powders that are in your, these like, kind of unknown powders, and people don't make the connection that cinnamon is powdered tree bark, right? <laughs> Sumac are right. berries right. from from this this uh, plant, and so it's it seems like it's the same idea of thinking of chicken as simply just something that comes saran wrapped in a styrofoam container. But no, it, it, where it comes from and how it's treated and the steps that it takes to get there are really important. Well, and it's interesting. Your spices are grown in Tan- Tanzania, Afghanistan, yep. Guatemala, Turkey, Spain, Egypt, Indonesia. I mean, like, how do you? How did you figure out the sourcing for this? Right. So that was the next major decision about the business. So step one was to say, is there a market for single origin, traceable, high quality spices? And by taking some samples around and chefs who are professional kind of buyers and consumers of these ingredients, if they were excited about it, 
we said, great. It's like an Under Armour. If the professional athletes use it, then me right. as a casual runner, real, yeah. <laughs> it's no probably question. good enough for me too. Um, <laughs> True. <laughs> and so then the next step was say, okay, what, what is our supply chain? Because half of our company is a supply chain company and half our company is a marketing and kind of distribution company. Right. And so the supply chain part of it was to say, okay, can we do this with one spice or, or not? And we decided that we need to kind of have a representative set of spices so that if we're asking people to buy from us, we can make it worth their while. So we're not just saying, come here and buy black peppercorns from us. And we're a source from amazing black peppercorns. We said we need to kind of be able to represent the full pantry. And wow. so that's what in the first year, Ethan started networking, reaching out to nonprofits, reaching out to friends that worked with him and solely networking to all these different farmers. And our criteria was to find farmers that uh, have a real passion behind their craft versus folks that are just selling by weight to the commodity market. Um, and two, to find people that, that are growing unique varietals. And that's, that's tied to their passion of finding these really amazing versions of these spices that maybe you've had before, but like, instead of being dried, we want it to be cured because we think that preserves the flavor better. Um, and the third one was around folks that were kind of ready to become direct exporters of their own crops. And so part of our business is to register them with the USDA and get them set up to be exporters instead of sell selling into the commodity market because that draws a direct line between what the farmers are making and what we're receiving. We want to make that as short of a, of a process as possible. Wow. That is very, very cool. And who is your typical consumer? When you think of the end consumer that's going to love your idea here, who is Yeah, that? this this was a little bit counterintuitive for us because we didn't we didn't know where we would land. We didn't know who would get excited about it. And as of today, our, we have two sides of our business. One is what we call professional buyers, our kind of B2B. And that's high-end restaurants, that's cosmetics companies, that's um, food producers, and, and other folks that are using spices in some form of the manufacturing. So some folks buy it for, for face masks uh, and, and conditioners. Some folks, we sell to a lot of high-end Michelin star restaurants. Wow. And those folks are actually just looking for a unique source for a product. And so for them, they, flavor is key, story is secondary. If they <laughs> taste coriander right. and it's way better than what they're getting, the sale is done. No further questions. And those guys are great because our wholesale customers are kind of the ones that are helping to, to put the volume through the system. So they're the ones that are buying, you know, tens or hundreds of pounds at a time. Sure. And that lets us have full containers that we're shipping through. And that lets us kind of have more buying power. No and so those are oh, the yeah. really foundational for us, even though they're lower margin. And that's, but that's okay. We're, we're really happy with that because that allows the business to exist. I love that. The other side of the house is the consumers, home cooks. And we're finding that there are these kind of very savvy home cooks. Our target market are these amazing cooks. They tend to be women. They tend to be 40 plus. They tend to be living outside of major cities. Wow. And where that all comes together is that they're, they, they know what they're doing and they love cooking. They likely don't have local access to, to quality specialty ingredients. And so they're used to buying online because we have a direct model where we sell right. directly to consumers from yep. our website. And so these folks are already used to importing and buying stuff. And by importing, I mean shipping to themselves from buying online from Amazon, from wherever. And so when they come across us, they're like, oh, great. I've been looking for a better vanilla or, oh, great. I've been looking for a better saffron. Really glad I found these guys. And wow. then they kind of put in these orders and they cook and they cook for their friends or their families or whatever else. 
but these people know what they're doing. Wow. Unbelievable. Well, and an an important part of growing the business is not only knowing your consumer and your product. And I mean, just, I mean, you guys have done such a good job of defining it, but it's also growing the business and determining whether to bring out investors and whatnot. And you're in New York, I know right now as we're talking and, and, and considering how do you grow the business? Talk a little bit about the program you're a part of there and then how you decide whether to take on uh, equity or whatnot. Yeah. So at the beginning, the business was fully bootstrapped and we were looking to say, how can we, we, we are actually a public benefit corporation. And for those that don't know that, that's a little different from a B Corp, but we incorporated our business with a stated public benefit, which is around connecting individual farmers, smallholder farmers from around the world directly to kind of high value markets. And we want to be the, the person that does that. And what being a public benefit corporation allows us to do is to most companies are required to maximize shareholder value. Public benefit corporations are also allowed to equally maximize that public benefit that's that's written into our bylaws. Wow. And so we wanted to have a stance here where, where we're kind of beholden to two parties, the, the good of, of our of our constituents, which are these farmers that we're trying to kind of build markets around, and the good of our shareholders. And so we really like that balance. Wow, On the other hand, we really wanted to say, well, if we want to grow, how do we have access to capital? How do we even think about capital? What happens next? And so we started reaching out to some of these accelerator programs that can help us think about how we can be a public benefit corporation, how we can think about our impact and our social impact around our farmers and what we do. But how do we also do it with a very strong kind of commercial mastery? And so we ended up reaching out to a few accelerators and we got accepted into the Techstars Accelerator um, in New York, which is 1,500 companies apply. 10 get in just by getting in there was, was a really meaningful kind of stamp of approval for us to say that like these guys aren't operating as a nonprofit. They're operating as a for-profit, but with an eye to, with, with a, with a core value of around impact. And by the way, those two values are, are, are intrinsically linked in us because by working more closely with the farmers, we're able to bring a higher quality product. And so if we don't work with the farmers and, and help them get, you know, work with the USDA get them set up as importers. We're even working with some of our farmers on how do we maybe share the cost of a grinder so they don't need to send it to a third-party grinder. So these things are kind of intrinsically linked. It's a little bit less of like one for me, one for somebody in a developing country. And it's much more so by working with us, we're able to have a larger impact on this. And so that's what Techstars has been really helping us to think about is how do we go to market? Who are we targeting? There's this massive group of casual cooks, which I'm one of them, that if you, if you give me hibiscus or coriander, I'm going to scratch my head and ask you a lot of questions on what to do with it. And so now we're focusing on how do we get to these more casual cooks and create content and create the right experience around that so that if they land on one of those pages, they, they know that they want to cook more at home. They know they want to eat healthier. They know they want to add flavor without a lot of salt or fat. And so, but the next step is how do I actually do that? We're developing the content around how to think about that. And with Techstars, we're also thinking about do we need to raise money? How much can we self-fund? How far can we push this while still maintaining a pretty meaningful ownership stake? Because for me and Ethan, for us, we'd be happy for this to be our forever business. We'd be happy to 20 years from now still be running this and, and growing it and all of that. And so we're really trying to balance, you know, do we raise money? Who do we raise money for? Do they have the line of sight into building a social impact business that's going to be running over the long term? And so we're asking ourselves a lot of these questions and hopefully in January or February of next year, we'll be able to kind of take a step back and say, okay, we're two years in, we've grown our sales significantly. We've interacted with a lot of different types of customers. 
where do we want to grow and do we need to deploy capital for that? And how do we do that while still protecting the core interest of, of the business that we want to build for ourselves? Wow. No question. A lot of questions every entrepreneur needs to ask. And what's cool about that accelerator is it's pushing you to get there quicker, which I think is is awesome. Yeah, um, that's right. right? It's, a I forest, mean, it, it's a little bit of like an artificial construct of saying sure. you have 12 weeks. Now you have to do this as quickly as possible. And I don't know, sometimes when you're, as any entrepreneur knows, there are a million things at any given moment that are calling for your attention. Creating some even artificial constructs of urgency, of decision making, of other things like that are are really helpful towards kind of kicking you across some things that maybe you've been dragging your feet on or maybe you've been deprioritizing. And so I'm very grateful for this program to that's forcing us to face the hard questions. Or otherwise maybe it would take another twelve months before we'd really think about it. But it's to the benefit of the business to think really clearly on whether we want to raise money, how we want to grow. Do we want to hire an acquisition person? Do we want to not? Like, do we want to, like, how do we measure impact? All these really core questions, they're kind of bringing to the front burner that I think left to our own devices. We would just be in execution land and kind of not, not have our head kind of raised above water for long enough to really be thinking about these things. Wow. Well, and you've now you've, you've had a couple of startups, one small, one much larger, and then this one. What would be one or two of your biggest lessons learned uh, looking back and then looking forward? Yeah, I, I think that that I did the whole venture funded business. And I think it's really easy to think of the grass being greener in that world. You know, you hear a lot of stories of Ubers and, of you know, Facebook, and like as all these guys raised a lot of money and then you everyone's driving a Tesla and whatever. <laughs> but the idea for an early stage company, the company is so fragile. And so you're kind of choosing between these two paths. One is the venture backed path. And if you're able to do that, if you have the characteristic of being a high growth business of really being able to measure kind of input and output and creating a very clear link between them and of having a business that that has very low friction around scaling. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Many people have built businesses like that, but you are now beholden to investors that expect massive growth. So it's not like people are raising these 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 big, large, large sums of money and then like kicking back and just hiring about not worrying about it. it. It's a totally different world that has its own unique set of difficulties. We're choosing to do more of the bootstrapped path. And Techstars has given us some money, which has given us a little bit of, of kind of resources to be able to, to deploy, as, as with any of these accelerators. But for us, it's much more important. We have a very sensitive supply chain that we're trying to figure out. We have a very clear thought on, on our values and what, what a good business looks like or for us in terms of supporting our farmers, supporting our customers, being able to tell that, that story around traceability. Um, and so for us, doing the bootstrap, doing the slow growth, being much more intentional about what we do versus the growth at all costs, that fits us a little bit more right now. And in general, it, it means that the first two or three years are going to have more sacrifices. And how, can we pay ourselves salaries? If so, how much do we pay ourselves? Being really careful on resources and begging and borrowing and having partial employees instead of full-time employees. And so that's what that path looks like. But what we're hoping is if we can kind of tread, you know, thread the needle for the next, you know, few years, we'll kind of come up and we'll, we'll find ourselves on top of a business that's able to pay reasonable salaries. That's, and, and most importantly, that is in our control that we own the majority of, that we don't have any, you know, sharks or other folks on the board that, that really want to want us to push us to sell to PepsiCo, you know, whatever, you know, within three to five years. (laughs) Yeah. The venture capital model is it's intrinsic in it. 
our venture capitalists raise these, you know, 10-year funds and they have to show return within a period and it has to be massive return. It can't be having a sustainable, you know, profitable business that maybe is doing a few million dollars of sales, which to me would be a great success, but to them would be a failure because it doesn't pass the mark for return. Absolutely. And so it's really about asking us these ourselves these questions of what do we want to build and how do we make sure that anyone that's involved in it, their priorities and their values are aligned with us versus kind of compromising here, compromising there. And then three years from now, we're running a business that we don't control under pressure to do things that we don't want to do. And, and that, that at the end, the upside is we own a fraction of this thing that, that was really our, our baby. Right. And so we're being really careful around that right now and trying to be really intentional on in how we grow and, and how we manage our expenses. That's interesting. I have a good friend who is in the last boat that you just mentioned there. And I have others that are all along the, uh, the, the spectrum, I guess you could say. Well, Ori, I mean, this is just so fascinating. And I, and I love um, what, what your company is doing and how you structured this. So where can our listeners find you? How can they engage and uh, get connected and get your product? Sure. So you can see us on, on burlapandbarrel.com where you can see all our spices. If you want to follow along, we visit our spice farmers three or four times a year. So oh, you can also cool. find us at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. So far this year, we went to visit our spice farmers in Zanzibar in Tanzania, That's awesome. um, in Guatemala, uh, and in Turkey. And so the people that follow us along can see the fields, see how these grow, see who the farmers are that are growing this, uh, see how the spices are dried. And we also bring it back to the uh, to the Michelin star chefs that we work with and the food producers and the makers and the even people, the amazing home cooks that buy our spices. We bring it all the way back there and show you how then it gets integrated into their into their home cooking and into their dishes. And it's just the two of us. The whole business is just the two of us. And I, <laughs> so you chat with us. One of the two of us will respond to That's you. It, awesome. It's really, really important to us to kind of really have have a really efficient and small and highly productive business. And just one last point that I'll make on that for whatever it's worth is that in order to do that, we have outsourced certain parts of our business instead of doing it in ourselves. So we have an external co-packer that we inspect and we set up the process and, and we did we did a full kind of design of how our spices are packed and what the labels look like. We have an external fulfillment agency just because these folks are so much more efficient at doing what they do than we would be if we were doing it out of our warehouse or we tried to do it ourselves. And so we also have a real philosophy in kind of self-funding, sure. self-financing. There's a philosophy of like, how much can we outsource? How much can we let the experts do? Um, until it makes sense for us to, to see cost savings by doing it full-time internally. Right. Focus on what you're best at, right? That's right. Wow. Well, Ori, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm excited about your company and where you're going. I can't wait to have you back on as this company really explodes in the next year. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you. And we, we do really well around the holidays. So as you guys are thinking about gifts for your friends, for your family, for yourself, <laughs> just do yourself a favor and clear out your pantry and bring in some things that are a little bit fresher I love and a little it. bit more flavorful. I love it. Burlapandbarrel.com. Thanks, Ori. Thank you. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via the Apple iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, Spotify, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at contenderbrands.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender. Contender.